Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. If you're a visitor here, we're glad you're here. My name is Chad. I am the senior pastor here, and we are happy to have you here with us. With that said, if you will, turn with me to Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be reading, beginning our reading in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks. Father, we ask that we would receive this as what it is, your word, the word of Christ our Lord to his church, given by the Holy Spirit, as he inspired Moses to write this for the sake not only of the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, but for your church in every age. May we receive your word with thanksgiving. May we hear what you have to say and heed the warning in this passage. The warning to all those who would live to make a name for themselves, who would give themselves to the things of this earth rather than to trust you. Help us, we pray, as we walk through this passage and cause us to honor Christ as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you living for? What are you living for? I suppose that's the fundamental question I want to ask as we come to this passage in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And we'll really look specifically at Genesis 6, 1 through 4 as we're following this narrative that comes after the genealogy in Genesis 5. And I'm asking the question, what are you living for precisely because of what we see the men in this passage living for. This morning I was telling the musicians as I was just praying and preparing, I had Fernando Ortega on, which dates me a bit, if you understand that. I love him and his music, and I was listening to him, and he has this song called Give Me Jesus. If you remember, it basically has this line about when he wakes up in the morning Give me Jesus. You can have all the things of this world, but give me Jesus, right? And when I'm alone, 
give me Jesus. You can have all the things on this earth, just give me Jesus. And when I go to bed, when I come to die, you can have all the things on this earth, just give me Jesus. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, and listening to that song, I was thinking about this passage, what are you living for? What are you living for? Here's what I want to get at as we come to maybe, maybe, arguably the most difficult passage in the book of Genesis. Most scholars will argue it's the most difficult passage in the book of Genesis. But here's what I want you to get a hold of as we come to it as the fundamental concern I have. This is a passage about a group of men who are actually doing the opposite of what I just said in the refrain of that song. These are a group of men who are living for all the things of this world, and they want nothing to do with the Lord. It's arguably one of the most difficult passages because scholars argue literally over every phrase of the first four verses. They argue over how to translate almost every phrase of the first four verses, and there are admittedly translation difficulties. But just as vigorously, they argue over theologically what's happening in this passage, and in particular with regard to our doctrine of angels. It's an interesting passage because many scholars, particularly most modern scholars, and then some of the most early scholars in the history of the church, or church fathers, men as well known as a man like Irenaeus, believe that this is a story about angels who procreated with women. It's a fascinating story to come to, and why they mean by that is demons, really, fallen angels. Say a fascinating story to come to on Mother's Day. The story of demons procreating with women. Some of you look at your children and wonder if that's what, in fact, happened. <laughs> but that's not what's occurring in this passage. But many through the centuries believed it is. Most modern commentators believe it is. So it's important that we approach a passage like this being circumspect about how boldly we declare what everything here means. Now I plan to present a short account of what I believe we're being taught in this passage. But even if you disagree with my conclusion, and even though that makes you wrong, here is the good news as we wade into this controversy Here's the good news. Even if my view of this passage is incorrect, we still find nearly all scholars landing on the same central theme of this text. The same central theme, regardless of the scholar's view on what's happening here, comes across. It's not actually difficult to exposit what the central theme of the text is. We can hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And the central theme of the text is this. As fallen man multiplies upon the earth... He is degenerating into even deeper and more wicked pride. And God's patience is wearing thin. His patience is wearing thin. So I want to take the sermon today around those two ideas. The first idea is the pride of man. Or as man is multiplying upon the earth, we see the pride of man increasing. We'll look at that in verses 1 and 2 and verse 4. And the second theme we're going to look at, the second part of that central theme we'll look at is the patience of God. And namely that the patience of God is wearing thin. God is long-suffering, but not forever suffering. We'll look at that specifically in verse 3. So let's begin by looking at the pride of man. Look with me at Genesis 6.1. When man 
began to multiply on the face of the land or the earth and daughters were born to them. I want to stop there and notice a few of our terms. First, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. This is a reference to Genesis 2, 7, 2, 5 and following really where we have Adam, Adam, multiplying on the Adamah, the ground or the earth or the land. Man was commanded, if you remember in Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so we're seeing that man was placed on the ground or the land for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. And we're reading here that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, we're reading here something that sounds like a fulfillment of that command. Man is actually multiplying as God commanded him to. That's good. But there's something ominous, if you will, in the undertones here. It says, and daughters were born to them, which, by the way, is fine. It's good to have daughters. In Genesis chapter 5, all the patriarchs have other sons and daughters. That's good. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Again, we hear this kind of refrain that doesn't seem immediately offensive in one sense. There's nothing wrong with a man noticing an attractive female and choosing to marry her. Right off the bat, that doesn't seem that difficult for us. But we still recognize that something's not quite right about this text. There's, there's something not quite right. And there are questions that sort of immediately spring to the forefront for us. Like, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? Why does this action of the sons of God marrying the daughters of man occasion the next verse in verse 3 that says God has become impatient? Look at verse 3. Look there. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now we'll return to this verse, but here's the question. Why does man, sons of God, marrying women, the daughters of man, why do those two groups intermarrying cause God to become impatient? Here's the next question that comes up. What's the connection between these marriages we read about in Genesis 6-2 and then what we read about in Genesis 6-4? Look there. Look at Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So who are these Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterwards? Were these Nephilim the children of the sons of God and the daughters of man when they came together? Is that what the text is saying? And why are they called the mighty men who were of old, men of renown? Do you see all the questions that start cropping up as you walk through here? Okay. 
there are three major opinions that have been held throughout the centuries by various people. Three major opinions. The first major opinion that's been held is that the sons of God here are angels who cross the boundaries God set for them. Fallen angels. And they took human wives, creating this race of giants known as the Nephilim. Angels, in fact, are called the sons of God in Job 1.6. The word here in Hebrew, ben Elohim, is the same phrase, ben Elohim, that you find in Job 1.6. And I would actually argue that Moses is the author of Job. Controversial, but not out of the realm of possibilities. Listen to what Job 1.6 says. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And so what scholars say is, this is where we get the understanding of what the sons of God are. They are angels, namely fallen angels, who are procreating with women. That's the argument that they have. And they're giving birth to these Nephilim, these giants. Now, I'm just going to be really quick here. It's Mother's Day, but I'm going to give you four difficulties I have with this view. Try to be quick. First, angels do not procreate. Angels do not procreate. Matthew 22:30, when Jesus talks about the resurrection, what does he say? For in the resurrection, they neither, meaning men and women, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? They are like the angels in heaven. Angels don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. Angels don't have physical bodies. Do we understand that? They don't have sexual organs. They don't have sexual desires that accompany them. That's my first concern about this view. Nowhere in Scripture do we learn that they have that kind of ability, nor desire. Second, angels are not the subject of this text. So here's what I want to say that's actually even more persuasive to me than the last point I just made. Even more persuasive to me is angels are not a subject of this text. In the context of Genesis 6, we're not talking about angels. The whole context since the curse on man has been a comparison between the seed of the serpent through the line of Cain and the seed of the woman through the line of Seth. It's been a contrast between those who are godly and those who are ungodly. Between Cain and Abel. Between Cain and Seth. Between Cain's Enoch and Seth's Enoch. Between Cain's Lamech and Seth's Lamech. That's been the context. Third critique I have is there is no, listen to this, there is no necessary grammatical connection between the Nephilim and the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. In other words, when you look at verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Here's the problem. Grammatically, there's no necessary connection between the Nephilim and the offspring of the daughters of man and the, the sons of God. Now, the Nephilim might be the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. I actually think the Nephilim likely are the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men. But arguing 
that the sons of God are angels would not make sense of a later post-flood text. Of a later post-flood text where we have the Nephilim mentioned again, which we'll look at later, namely Numbers 13.33. There's no mention of angels and women having intercourse in the passage in Numbers 13. Yet we have Nephilim again. I'll look at that a bit more in a little bit. Fourth concern I have. Genesis 6 casts no judgment upon fallen angels who've sinned. And that's not irrelevant. The whole text is about God's anger toward who? Man. Look at Genesis 6, 3 again. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in who? Man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Look at Genesis 6, 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of who was great in the earth? Man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made who? Man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out who? Man, whom I have created from the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Here's how St. Augustine comments, similarly to what I've been arguing. Augustine says this, But these sons of God were not angels of God, as some people suppose, in any sense that meant they were not human beings. Scripture itself, here's Augustine, Scripture itself unambiguously declares that they were undoubtedly human beings. For, after saying that the angels, or the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were good, And they took wives for themselves from all they chose. It immediately goes on to say, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in these men forever, for they are flesh. That's who God's condemning. Aquinas concurred with Augustine on this point, as did Martin Luther, as did John Calvin. Now, some of the early church fathers following pseudepigraphal book called First Enoch took this angelic view that I'm rejecting. But they're good godly men who took this angelic view that I'm rejecting. So I want you to hear that. Most modern commentators take the view I'm rejecting. Most modern commentators. But I'm with John Calvin when he wrote this. That old story about angels having sexual intercourse with women must be refuted, for it is absurd. The second major opinion is that the sons of God are human judges or rulers. They're human judges or rulers. They're like royal despots who participated in polygamy, much like we see with Lamech in Genesis 4. If you remember, Lamech took two wives, the first polygamist in the Bible, and he then wrote a song to sing in front of his wives about how amazing and powerful he is, if you remember. And what it's saying is, is, that these men are like our royal despots, sort of like Lemek. Now, there are some who combine that first view about angels with this second view about royal despots, and they have kind of a, a hybrid, pardon the pun. They have sort of a hybrid of the two. And what they say is, is that these human tyrants, these wicked human kings, are demoniacs possessed by fallen angels who take whatever women they want. 
and the reason they can pick up on this kind of view that these wicked kings might be demoniacs is because of a passage like Daniel 10 that seems to indicate that there are demons who are somehow associated with particular kings, like in Persia or Babylon. And so they come at this view. They also tend to point out the ancient Near Eastern mythology in support of their views, which do contain these kinds of stories. And so we can see why they might take this view. But whether you blend the angelic view with the human king view, or you merely take the view that it's a tyrannical, polygamous king, there's good reason to think the sons of God could be referenced to kings. Just like I said, there's good reasons to say they could be referenced to angels, the sons of God and Job 1.6. There's also good reasons to argue they could be referenced to human kings. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, 13-16, David's son and David are referred to as son of God. In Psalm 2.7, David's referred to as a son of God. In Psalm 82.6, the kings or judges of the earth are referred to as sons of God. In Psalm 89.27, they're referred to as sons of God. So we could see how they could say, well, these are wicked, tyrannical kings. However, let me provide a few objections to this. I actually find this view to be a little stronger than the prior view, but let me provide some objections. First, it seems to me to be a stretch to argue that suddenly in Genesis 6, we have this narrowly defined term for son of God being exclusively applied to kings and judges. Now, it's not impossible, but it's a bit difficult for me. Second, they took as their wives any they chose in verse 2, when it says that, that they took, verse 2, as their wives any they chose, does not necessitate that these are polygamous kings. Though they may have been. And they even likely were polygamists. It doesn't necessitate it. Third, and perhaps most importantly, the Lord does not just run out of patience with kings and judges. The Lord is coming against all mankind in his flood judgment. The problem of the wickedness of man is widespread across the populace. This wickedness is particularly bad among kings and judges, but it's not exclusively a problem among them. Further, I have some methodological concerns about the way modern scholars read ancient Near Eastern myths into the text of Genesis that are a bit beyond the scope of the sermon. But if you want to talk more about that and have some sort of seriously nerd session with me over coffee, talk to me later. The third major opinion The sons of God are the godly line of Seth who married indiscriminately. In other words, they are men who married indiscriminately outside of the covenant community. That's the view I take. I do so for several reasons. First, the whole context, as I said, is about the contrast between the godly line of Seth, the seed of the woman, versus the ungodly line of Cain, the seed of the serpent. So the whole context. I think this whole section of Genesis is demonstrating how quickly man becomes like the self-exalting serpent. As with our father, the devil, so with his children, we want to be like God. In fact, that's the nature of the language here. Look at Genesis 6-2. Look at verse 2 again. The sons of God saw 
page is that word saw. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Actually, in Hebrew, good. They saw that the daughters of man were good and they took. They saw it was good and they took. Does that language remind anybody of anything? Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. It should remind you of this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, same word as beautiful or attractive for the women, the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she what? Took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is all the same Hebrew as in Genesis 3, 6. Here's what I'm arguing. It's a continual playing out of the same problem with man. It's a continual playing out of the same problem with man. Second, the immediate context. The immediate context does have language that accounts for men in the covenant community being called the sons of God. Look at Genesis 4 and verse 26. Just after Cain, his family is listed there, and that sort of wicked family of Cain is listed there. In verse 26, we hear about God giving birth to, uh, via Adam and Eve to Seth. Seth also was a son born. He called his name Enosh, which just means man. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew here is a passive use of a verb. I won't get into all that, which might be best translated or Maybe, arguably, is best translated, people began to be called by the name of the Lord. People began to be called by the name of the Lord. If that's true, that explains why they're being called the sons of God, these sons of Seth, which is the genealogy we're about to get into in Genesis 5, are being called the sons of God in Genesis 6. And these are the men we keep hearing about described through Genesis 5, isn't it? The men who are the godly line of Seth. Remember, we're still in Genesis 6, we're still in the genealogy of Adam via Seth to Noah. We're still there. We remain in Noah's genealogy until the end of Genesis 9, where he finally dies. And the contrast here is dramatic. The world, even Seth's godly line, has abandoned the Lord. Except Noah. Except Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus it seems clear that these men are Seth's sons, the covenant sons, who are being fruitful and multiplying and degenerating, degenerating into ungodliness and wickedness. Third, the context, I want you to hear this next move. The context of the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, supports the notion that these sons of God are men in God's covenant community. In Exodus 4.22, what is Israel referred to as? The firstborn son of God. In Deuteronomy 14, also written by Moses, I want you to hear this. You don't have to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 14, we hear this language about Israel or the covenant community. Listen to what's said. You are the sons of the Lord your God. 
Isaiah teaches us to read Moses in this way. So in Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, particularly verses 5 through 7, they're referred to as the sons of the Lord. As does Hosea 11.1 1, when Hosea comments on Exodus 4 and refers to the fact that God brought his firstborn son out of Egypt. As does the apostle Matthew when he then takes that to the person of Jesus Christ. Fourth, the term the son of God is used of Adam by Luke. In other words, here's the one that I think for me cinches the whole thing. Look at Luke chapter 3. Keep your hand there in Genesis 6 and look at Luke chapter 3. We have a genealogy that begins with Jesus at verse 23 of Luke 3. And then it runs through many of the Old Testament sons, through the line of David, through the line of Abraham. It actually runs us through part of Genesis 11 and then brings us into Genesis 5. Genesis 5, and notice what it starts to say. Verse 37, we'll just pick up verse 37 for the sake of time. The son of Methuselah, remember he was in Genesis 5. The son of Enoch in Genesis 5. The son of Jared, also in Genesis 5. The son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the what? Son of God. Here, the apostle Luke, by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, is telling us, as he comments on Genesis 5, that Adam is the son of God. And then in Genesis 6, we read, the sons of God found the daughters of man attractive. And I think we're getting, by apostolic authority, the sense of how we're to understand Genesis 5, that this is the line of the sons of God. These are the ones who are called by the name of Yahweh. They're the ones who are walking with the Lord. And the tragedy in Genesis 6 is that those who are called by God's name, who are a part of his covenant community, who were once walking with him, they are turning away from him and participating in wickedness with the rest of the world. Fifth thing, marrying indiscriminately. I want you to hear this last point. Marrying indiscriminately outside the covenant community is forbidden throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of Torah, throughout the Old Testament. We see both the command against taking foreign wives and the disaster that occurs when they disobey this. We're told, for example, in Genesis 28, 1, we hear one of the patriarchs being told, don't take a foreign wife. We're told that with regard to Deuteronomy 7, do not take foreign wives. The point wasn't that God didn't like foreigners or intermarriage with regard to ethnicity. The issue is that these foreigners are specifically referencing as those who worship false gods. Don't take as your wife anyone who is an idolater, anyone who worships false gods, because they will turn your heart away from the true and living God, and they will turn your heart to the things of this world. So I think what's actually taking place here is that the sons of God, those who are called by the name of Yahweh, those who are part of the covenant community, are intermarrying with pagan women. More specifically, I think they're intermarrying with Cain's offspring, but I don't mean that they're only marrying Cain's daughters, as if the daughters of man only refers to Cain's daughters. What I mean is that they are indiscriminately marrying women based upon sensual lusts. 
rather than concerns about the faith and godliness of these women. Man has become consumed with passionate lust and looks only at the external beauty, having no concern for the beauty of godliness. And friends, please understand, bad company corrupts good morals. If you marry someone with regard primarily to external attractiveness and without regard to the unfading beauty of godliness, then you're pursuing an idolatrous path. Young people, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, do not marry unbelievers. Do not date unbelievers. And by the way, professing faith and going to church does not make someone a worthy spouse. Godly people do profess faith and are involved in the church, but that's a bare minimum. I hear this from young people all the time. Well, they go to church and they say they believe in Jesus. Yeah, but are they walking in godliness? You need to ask more fundamental questions. Does this person hate their own sin or just the sin of others? Do they hate what God hates and love what God loves, or are they always willing to mix in with the worldly standard? Do they love Christ and his church such that they put themselves aside for the sake of the unity of the church and truth? Do they love the word of God and submit to his thoughts rather than their own? See, are they always negotiating the truth so they can get some of their own thoughts in there? Do they pursue godliness and exercise self-control, or do they just talk a good game? You know, they go to all the Bible studies, but then they exercise no self-control. Do they love holiness, or do they just look for ways to sort of cross the line under the guise of, well, God's grace covers it all? Do they forgive well? Are they patient? Do they assume the best of others? Do they avoid gossip and slander? Are they willing to serve Christ's people and unbelievers in sacrificial ways? Hey, simply, do they hold down a decent job and stay out of debt? Those are matters of godliness. The Bible addresses those things. Does the person heed the counsel of godly wisdom of the spirit-appointed elders of his church? Or does this person judge themselves superior in wisdom to the godly older people placed around them? Look, here's the point I'm making. Young men and young women seek a godly spouse. Ask the wise men and women around you about the folks you're considering. Ask the God-appointed overseers of your souls for wisdom. And here's the next step. Listen to the wisdom that you're given. I cannot tell you how many times young men have come to me and asked me for advice over and over and over, and then they do the exact opposite of the advice I give them, and then they complain about how it turns out, and then they ask me for advice again, they do the exact opposite again, and they complain about how it turns out, and it's just like some kind of hamster wheel that they're on. They're unwise. I can say this on behalf of the pastors and elders and some of the older godly men in this church. I can say this. Never has a young man or woman come to us and said, do you think this is a good idea? And we've said, no, that's a bad idea. Never has a person listened to us when we said that. And every occasion we say, bad idea, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. Every single time. And then we end up in the marital counseling. I wish I would have listened to you. To which we say, that conversation's over. Put that to bed. 
Don't ever say it again. You're married now. Be wise, young people. Be wise doesn't just mean go around asking people for advice, and then once you're done doing what you were planning to do in the first place anyway. God put godly older people around you. Not just the elders in the church, but godly older people around you for a reason. I think what's happening here is that those who are properly a part of God's church, who are called by his name, are sinfully running after their fleshly desires. Now here comes the obvious objection to my point. If you're right about this, if that's true, if this is about these people who are a part of God's church or this covenant community turning from him and running indiscriminately after any woman they choose, sinfully pursuing idolatry, then how do we understand the Nephilim, the men of renown? And it becomes difficult for a variety of reasons. That objection stands out, right? Well, then what's up with these Nephilim? What are Nephilim? First of all, that's like us transliterating that word. We're just taking the Hebrew and trying to bring it over into English without translating it. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Old Testament, both use the respective Greek and Latin word for giants in order to translate the word Nephilim. And that makes us wonder if these are giants in the sense of really physically huge men or if there's some kind of third thing between man and angels. The reason I bring that up is sometimes I'm walking with my friends and we'll be walking along and I think I'm about the same size as them and we go walking by a store window and I look over and see my reflection and I think, oh my, I'm a giant, right? Is that what we mean? Is that what we mean here? Or is it some kind of a third thing where you have some kind of mixture of man and demon? <laughs> That's one of the questions that comes up. Second, the only other biblical reference to these Nephilim is in Numbers 13.33. Numbers 13.33. So we need to look there because the only other place to reference, look there, Numbers 13. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 13. And I'll read verses 32 and 33. If you remember, the spies go out and spy the land of Canaan, the land where they're being sent, the promised land. They spy it out and they come and give the report about the land and the peoples, the pagan peoples that live there. And when they come back to give their report about the pagan peoples that live there, we read this, verse 32. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw on it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Look, so, if Numbers 13.33 tells us what the Nephilim are, we're left with problems. For example, Numbers 13.33 says that the sons of Anak come from the Nephilim. If these are the same Nephilim mentioned in Genesis 6, then these are men who lived through the flood, who survived it. But we're told that no one survived it but Noah's family, so that can't be the case. They're the Nephilim who are the sons of Anak. That's what we know. The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, that's what we know. That's all we know. 
Second, there's a manuscript issue here in that the phrase that the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim is not found in a lot of the older manuscripts, so we end up with that problem on the table. And thirdly, the Nephilim are never cataloged in Deuteronomy. So when you get to Deuteronomy, where all the inhabitants of Canaan are listed, the Anakites are listed, the Nephilim are never listed. So Numbers 13.33 is not really all that helpful in resolving our problem. Do you see what my week was like? Third, we're not sure whether the mighty men, the men of renown in Genesis 6-4, are the same people as the Nephilim. We don't know. Look at Genesis 6 again. Genesis 6 and verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. So these Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. We're not sure if that means in the days that these marriages were happening and also afterward until the flood, because there's a hundred and plus years between this point and the coming flood, or afterward means before the flood and after the flood. But we hear that there's also the mighty men. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Are they the same people as the Nephilim or not? It's not grammatically necessary to conclude either way. So this is where, you know, you go learn your languages and your grammar and your syntax. and You you get all geeked out on that stuff and you realize it doesn't answer all my questions. I still have to wrestle with the text. However, on the same basis of the overall argument I've made, I want to argue that these are the same people, the Nephilim and the mighty men, and that it helps us understand the text. The word Nephilim in Genesis 6-4 is not the only Hebrew word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates with gigas or gigantes, which is giants. It's not the only word. The Hebrew word for mighty men is gibor. That's the Hebrew word. And it's often translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as gigas or gigantes. In other words... The Greek translators of the Old Testament, prior to Christ the Apostles, translated both the word for mighty men and the word Nephilim with the same Greek term for giants. I bring this up because these words come up again in Genesis. And again, they're translated this way in the Greek. So look at Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, and I think you'll start to see some resolution, at least I hope you do. Genesis 10 and verse 8. We have a genealogy again, the genealogy, in fact, of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in the genealogy of Ham, his wicked son who's under the curse, we read this, verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Gibor, same word in Genesis 6-4 in the Hebrew, in the Septuagint, translated gigas, giant. Nimrod, he was a mighty, verse 9, hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now notice this, don't forget this, verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was what? Babel. Now go to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth, again you have a story of the fall of man, if you will, another fall of man, following a genealogy, just like you have in Genesis 6. Following the genealogy of Genesis 5, you now have one in Genesis 11, following the genealogy in Genesis 10. Now the whole earth had one language 
and the same words, and people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, if you want to know the land of Shinar, Genesis 10.10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. That's the last phrase of Genesis 10.10. Here's there in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us do what? Make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So these men, these mighty men, are building a tower in the land of Shinar to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. The Hebrew word Shem. They want to make for themselves a Shem, a name. Now go back to Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of Shem, the men of name, the men of renown. In fact, it is Enosh, Shem, men of name. Now, the Septuagint will actually use this same word throughout Ezekiel, this word for Gibor, mighty men, throughout Ezekiel 32, to translate, to talk about mighty men who were wicked kings who fell under God's judgment. In other words, I'm arguing that these Nephilim, here's what I'm going to try to sew it together for you. These Nephilim were the mighty men. They were the men of renown in antiquity, the men of Shem. In other words, the men of names. What do we mean by that? They were the men who set their minds and hearts upon the end of making a great name for themselves. That's what I mean. But they are men. They are men whose minds are set on earthly things. This is the view of Ambrose, Augustine, Basel, Jerome. These are men like Cain, Enoch, and Lamech in Genesis 4. Men who build cities and name the cities after themselves. Men who sing songs about their own greatness. They're like Nimrod at Babel. These are the men seeking a great name for themselves. This is why the Lord has grown impatient with man. Because all of mankind, even his covenant sons, are becoming like Cain, like Lamech, like the seed of the serpent. They are all becoming self-sufficient, self-indulgent, self-exalting, sensuous, polygamous, murdering tyrants. All of them. Man is becoming increasingly man-centered, wanting to exalt his own name rather than the name of the Lord. The whole of mankind seems to be becoming the idolatrous, polygamous, bloodthirsty city of man. Even the godly line of Seth, the covenant sons in Seth's line are Asserting their own autonomy, their own self-sufficiency, their own self-exaltation. It seems to me, in other words, that the point in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is that as man is fruitful and multiplying, all mankind is becoming like Cain and Lamech. The city of man is spreading. They're all polygamous, idolatrous, bloodthirsty men who are exalting themselves. In other words, they're looking to make a name for themselves. 
They're all like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 5 through 6, who want to be like God. They're all like the men at Babel in Genesis 11, who want to build a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. It's that, here's the problem in Genesis 6, the problem in Genesis 3, the problem in Genesis 6, the problem in Genesis 11, and the problem with every single one of us is that man wants his own name to be exalted. We think too highly of ourselves. We forget that God gives us breath and life and that God can snuff us out whenever he pleases. And friends, that's the condition of the city of man. That's the condition that affects us all. God is patient and kind toward us. His benevolence and his beauty are all over creation. We enjoy life and breath and the rich bounty of these beautiful gifts. And what do we want in response to all of God's good gifts? We want to exalt our own names. We want to exalt our own names. Whatever gifts God has given you, he's given you for the exaltation of his name. And you know what we use them for? The exaltation of our own names. I want people to recognize me, to know I'm good, to see what I've done. I want to leave a legacy. I want a monument to my name. I want to be exalted in some way. I need to be recognized. We don't repent and trust him and listen to his voice and exalt his great name. Rather, we exalt ourselves. I'm coming back to the original point I started with. What are you living for? What are you living for? You want the Lord or you want the exaltation of your own name? You can't have them both. And while God is patient, while he's long-suffering, he's not forever suffering. And that really is my last point. Look at verse 3, God's patience. Verse 3, chapter 6. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God has contended with man, patiently calling him to repentance. At this point, by the most conservative estimates as we walk through the genealogies, for 1,656 years. From Adam to the flood, that's the most conservative estimate, 1,656 years. Think about it. It's almost two millennium. And he's either saying, I'm not going to contend with him much more than 120 years. In other words, 120 years between now that I'm saying this and the flood that's to come, which is just over 100 years after this, the flood comes. Or he's saying, I'm only going to allow man to live 120 years as an average lifespan. And again, as I said with this passage, scholars argue over every phrase. Here's the point. Whether it's the fact that God on average is going to let man live 120 years, or it's the fact that God is not going to judge the earth with a flood for 120 years, the bottom line is, that's incredibly patient. That's incredibly patient given the fact that man is seeking to exalt himself. God is patient. But his purpose in that patience is not so that we can spend years in self-fulfillment and self-exaltation. That's not the purpose of his patience. Look at Romans 2. We could also look at 2 Peter 3, but we won't. Just Romans 2 so I can conclude. As God speaks to his people... 
through Paul, namely Paul's addressing here the Jews, talking about God's kindness toward them and patience with them as a people. He says this in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, listen, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God is being kind to us. We have life and breath. He hasn't cast us into hell. He's being patient. He's being kind. We have a lot of good things. We have air conditioning in this room and you're sitting in padded chairs. He's being kind to us. Do you presume upon his kindness? Every breath you take is a gift. Every beat of your heart is a gift. God can take that away whenever he wants. But he's patiently, kindly giving that to you. Do you presume upon that is what Paul's asking. Are you presumptuous about it? Not knowing that his kindness was meant to lead you to repentance. Look what he goes on to say, verse 5. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, God is patient as he awaits all repentance. But if you don't repent, if you don't turn to Christ in faith and look to him, walk with him, God's patience toward you, his kindness toward you, will be a storing up of wrath against you. Because in spite of your sin and self-exaltation and pursuit of your own thing, in spite of your rebellion against his law, living for yourself, in spite of all that, he continued to be patient, he continued to be kind. He continued to be patient, he continued to be kind. And you rebuffed him to the end. And wrath will be stored up for you. That's what Paul's saying. So here's the question. Have you repented of your sins? Have you looked to Christ for forgiveness? Have you received new birth in Christ so you trust him and want to live your life for the sake of his name? You know, when you're baptized, his name is placed upon you. You know that? You're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. His name is placed upon you. Are you living for the sake of his name? Or are you taking his name in vain? See, we don't want to take his name in vain. We want to honor him. Listen, friends, we do not need to live for the glory of our own name. We do not need to make a name for ourselves. The Lord will give his people a name. That's his promise to Abraham. If you remember in Genesis 12, I will make your name great. In Christ, God is our God and we are his people. Thus, we do not need to go out and establish our name. Rather, as Christians, we can rejoice that as those trusting in Christ, our names are written in heaven. Please hear that good news. That's why you can say, you can have all the things of this world. Just give me Jesus. Because my name is known in the most important place it could ever be known. In heaven with the Lord. Which is why Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's no better place for your name to be known. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your son and for his work on our behalf. We recognize you have been incredibly patient and kind in spite of our rebellion and sin, even sending your son, especially sending your son, that we might be forgiven, declared righteous, 
that our names might be written in heaven. We pray that we would not live for the things of this world, that we would not seek to exalt our own names, but that we would live for the sake of your name, that we would live consistently with the name that was placed upon us at baptism, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that we would exalt Christ's name in all the earth, in all of life, every day. Help us to repent of any ways in which we seek the glory of our own name. Help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.